The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we are recording this on Monday, and by Tuesday, when many people are going to listen to this program, we may have an answer out of Zambia as to whether or not uh, private creditors are going to vote against the government's request for an extension of payment, about six months of a payment holiday on interest on $3 billion of its Eurobond debt. One of the key concerns that these private creditors have is the lack of transparency coming from the Zambian side and the Chinese side about the extent of Chinese loans to Zambia. And it's this lack of transparency which we're seeing across the debt crisis in Africa that's really starting to put pressure on the Chinese in terms of figuring out how we're going to solve this. Now, we had a debt deal in Angola, which I'm not entirely sure if it's been finalized or not, but it's been presented as being finalized, but we still don't know the details. And this is really one of the big challenges in trying to understand the current financial crisis, not only in Africa, but in other parts of the developing world related to Chinese debt. Kobus, now last week we spoke with uh, Matt Furchin, who is an expert in China-Venezuela debt. This week we're going to look at Southeast Asia and Laos, but I think this is one of the persistent problems that we're talking about in terms of understanding where this debt crisis goes. Yes, because, you know, we, we see that some of China's opponents in the world, particularly the United States, they, they keep pushing the idea that China's going to, um, you know, seize assets or you know, confiscate power networks or whatever. Um, and this has so far been quite unhelpful, I think, in, in the in the conversation, because there, there are no no real precedents of China doing that, you know, so 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 it kind of pushes the, the conversation into this kind of fantasy world. Whereas at the same time, you know, as these as as countries come closer to default and particular project financing comes closer to, to default, we're gonna have to reckon with what they actually have to do. Like like how are how are these these kind of distressed projects going to, going to be saved on the ground? Um, and that's a that's a much more complicated you know, um, conversation than simply the, the this kind of fantasy of Chinese people kind of marching into a boardroom and you know kind of taking the keys of the company. So China owns about a third of Zambia's $11 billion of external debt, $3 billion of that eurobond debt. It will probably be defaulted on by the time you hear this program. The next country of concern is going to be Kenya, where they are having problems repaying the debt on the standard gauge railway. They've already missed one $350 million payment. Other countries to be concerned about in terms of debt distress and Chinese loans, Djibouti and also Ethiopia. And again, we're trying to put together how this puzzle fits in terms of what kinds of deals, what do they look like? And so for that, we're really interested in in Laos. And Laos is a tiny country here in Southeast Asia, very close to where I am. And they are very much a part of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, which is something that we're going to be talking a lot more about 
between now and the end of the year. But they've done a number of deals with the Chinese that look a lot like the African deals. And so for that, we're very excited to have on the program for the first time Kelly Wenjing Chen, who is a research assistant professor in the Division of Social Sciences at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. She recently wrote a paper, Sovereign Debt in the Making, Financial Entanglements in Labor Politics Along the Belt and Road in Laos. Uh, that was published in September of this year in the academic journal Economic Geography. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and a very good afternoon. Hi, Eric and Kobus. Nice to meet you. I'm joining the podcast from Hong Kong. Oh, yes. We're very excited that you're joining us from Hong Kong. We've been talking to a number of scholars from the territory in, in recent months. Uh, and we're also very interested to find out more about your research in Laos, again, just so we can start to better understand what the Chinese might be doing in other parts of the world, namely in Africa. Let's start our discussion with the uh, Trans-Laos Railway. And you talked about this in your paper. Back in November 2015, about five years ago, China and the Lao governments uh, signed a deal for $465 million to, for Laos to borrow from the China Exim Bank to cover Laos's share of this railway. Now, by African standards, certainly compared to the standard gauge railway projects in Nigeria and also in Kenya, $465 million is not a huge amount when we're talking about multi-billion dollar deals. But certainly for Laos, one of the poorest countries in Asia, one of the poorest countries in the world, this was a huge loan. Why don't we pick up our conversation from there in terms of help us understand what the Trans-Lao Railway was? The financial arrangement for this railway was set up in 2015. And just as Eric said, a lot of these Chinese loans to Global South are opaque. And by opaque, I think you probably mean that um, the exact terms and conditions of the loan are not publicized. And so for this uh, financial deals for Trans-Laos Railway, when the financial setup was made, actually it's both countries entering an agreement on how to pay for this railway. But when this financial plan actually roll into implementation, it doesn't work out in that way. So a lot of change changes to the terms and conditions of this loan has been happening. And I think that's an important reason that constitute to the opaqueness of Chinese loan, because it's always in the process of readjustment. In, in your article, you mentioned that that um, as the project went on, um, Chinese companies were, were forced to start using their own capital. Um, wh why did that happen? Well, so for all the infrastructure project um, contractors, not only the Chinese infrastructure, actually, if you uh, take a look at the entire construction sector, the contractors are usually required to kick off um, construction with their own capital and then get repayment from their um, upper level contractor. One of the concerns that's come up about the Laos-China railway, which is very similar to the concerns brought up about the standard gauge railway in Kenya, was from the beginning, it was never going to be economically viable or sustainable. Laos, again, is one of the poorest countries in the world. It doesn't have the passenger traffic or the cargo volume to be able to generate the revenues to repay the loans. This is something that's also been brought up in Kenya as well. What was the motivation under those circumstances in terms of when and back in 2015 they made this deal for this railway? What do you think the thinking was from both sides about the, the merits of it? Uh, well, so there is a definitely a geopolitical interest behind these big railway projects. But also uh, from the Chinese side, uh, by using a, this 
common practice of bundled loan, you can make project like the Canyon Railway or the Lao Railway profitable in the end. So even though if you look at these railway projects alone, they're never going to generate profit. But when Chinese banks uh, are providing loans, they provide loans not only for this railway project, but bundle the railway together with other uh, natural resource projects. In Laos' case, it's um, land-based equity. So you're, you're going to be able to generate profit on those other projects and then use that profit to write off the, the loss on the railway. So in that way, through this financial engineering process, uh, the, this railway would be made suitable for a loan. But that's the Chinese side that would be able to pay off its portion of it. How does the Laotian government pay off the $465 million that it borrowed from Exim Bank? Mm, so the Lao side initially entered that agreement to borrow from China Export Import Bank. But in order for the Lao side to take out a loan, uh, it has to inject equity into the project itself. So basically uh, for the China's uh, financial sector and globally, it's like that. For the borrowing party, you have to put in a, a share of the uh, equity first in order to channel the loan over. So the Lao side, while they signed a deal, but they never, at least at the beginning of the construction, they were not able to provide the equity share. So technically speaking, the bank's money never, credit was never injected into the railway. And what does equity mean in, in this definition? How, what do you define as equity? The Lao side own share on the railway, I think it's 30 to 40%, right? So for that percentage, they they have to uh, contribute like $7 million, roughly that amount in total, to the railway. So one-third of that would be uh, equity paid by themselves. And then two-thirds of that would be covered by a loan from China Export-Import Bank. So basically, these two, uh, these two streams of money are linked. Uh, the Lao side have to provide that one-third of its cash share first in order to channel the Chinese loan over. You start off your paper with the, with this vignette of um, of Chinese um, laborers protesting, and they they happen to be you know a, a subcontractors laborers, but they were they were protesting the the, the regional state owned enterprise, the main contractor. Um, why were they protesting, and and why had things gone gotten so bad that they ha- that they haven't gotten paid over so such a long time? If you have a like a mega infrastructure that has a financial setup, like the Trans-Laos Railway did in 2015, then with that financial setup, the project can start it bidding. It can bid out its contract to uh, like uh, other companies to actually source capital and labor into bringing that project into reality. But then in the Trans-Laos Railway's case, because the financial practices set up in the agreement never actually materialized. That's why the project has a chronic financial difficulty. But at the same time, the Chinese government, Chinese state really are putting pressure on a state-owned enterprise on the railway to build a railway on time because of geopolitical interests. So that's why you see a state pressuring Chinese enterprise on the railway into financing the money with their own capital. So you, you've mentioned geopolitical interests a couple of times, and this is the suspicions that a lot of people outside of China have about these kinds of investments in places like Laos or in Kenya or elsewhere in the global south, that it's really not about economics, it's really about geopolitics, or at least that's a part of the mix. What part, we still don't know. 
when these infrastructure projects run into problems, how does the geopolitical consideration weigh in terms of whether or not to forgive the debt, restructure the debt, what to do about the debt? That would really depend on China's negotiation with the borrowing country and the global context, I guess. But increasingly, I see China taking a market approach to debt. So I think for most of its uh, low interest loans, it's going to uh, opt towards debt restructuring instead of debt cancellation or debt relief. Following on, on, on that, in, your, in the paper, you, you make the broader point that, that the, this case of the Lauru Railway um, disproves some of the thinking, the, you know, more established thinking about how debt works. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that. You know, kind of, I'm, I'm no debt expert, so, you know, that kind of input is, is super interesting for me. Okay, happy to. So, uh, basically, uh, my work was about offer an alternative way to think about uh, China's sovereign lending practices. Uh, so basically, uh, I think the most established discourse around this topic is debt trap diplomacy, right? And then as um, Eric has already uh, written about this issue that like Deborah Brautigan and a couple other prominent scholars have already showed that and argued that there isn't concrete evidence that supporting contention that China is engaging in predatory lending with a explicit political motivation, right? So that was one way to debunk the debt trap diplomacy discourse. But in my work, I'm trying to use the Lao case to show that first what's missing in the discourse is also a general lack of care or attention to what these financial practices means for the Chinese sector involved. And the second, I think the entire uh, conversation around China's lending practices are very speculative and future-oriented. Uh, we always sort of take a high-profile moment of uh, some bilateral um, financial arrangement was made or remade and use that to predict its implication, but never actually look in the intermachinery of um, sovereign debt making. We never look at the actual financial flows and how are each actors different, uh, differently placed in its financial relation work um, to um, bring uh, like credit over, grounding a credit into an actual project and make it into reality. So that's uh, what I'm trying to um, look for. So I'm basically hoping that uh, conversations around China's banking practices globally can switch from a debt trap diplomacy to instead asking what are these financial interdependencies between China and southern country means for different actors. Well, that would switch if only the Chinese side was a little bit more transparent and clear about the deals. We don't know about the deals, so in the absence of that kind of knowledge, it allows for these debt trap rumors to, to circulate and to fester. At the same time, I think just to, to clarify one point that you made about the debt trap narrative is that it's not that there isn't political intention. A lot of people believe there is a political intention, and there is some, as you pointed out, there are geopolitical considerations. It's the asset seizure part of this that lends people to think that there might be something more than just a, a debt for economic purposes. And so the, the key part of the debt trap narrative that Deborah Braudigam and others have debunked is that there's been no, no seizures of any assets. But so that while there's not been any seizure of assets in Laos, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, back on September 4th, 
uh, both Xinhua and Reuters reported on a story about a power grid sharing a deal between the state-owned Electricité du Laos and the China Southern Power Grid Company. Now, this is for Laos's power transmission uh, network, not the actual power generation side of the business. And what it was was, again, it ran into debt problems. So they created this new parastatal company, which is a kind of a third party where that was owned by China that will be managed in Laos, but all the equity is owned by the Chinese. So it's a debt for equity swap. And that is one of the concerns that a lot of people have is that maybe the Chinese will use this as a model for other places where it has distressed assets, possibly in Africa or elsewhere, by rather than seizing the asset, they will just do a debt for equity swap. Are you familiar with this concept? I'm happy to talk more about this specific issue, um, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think uh, Deborah Brownigan's um, argument about debt trap diplomacy is that she thinks there isn't an explicit political interest of making predatory lending, right? Correct. So Professor Browdigam's case is, and, and we've interviewed her on that, and she does separate a political uh, uh, element from that. However, Deborah Browdigam, in that sense, I think is an outlier compared to proponents of the debt trap narrative, say, in Washington and other scholars as well. Kobus, would you think that's a fair characterization of Professor Browdigam's position on that? Yeah, you know, kind of that 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 she that she makes that distinction. You know, as as far as I know, as as, as far as I remember, um, and and you know, other other people ascribe a, a more direct kind of political agenda in in you know kind of in into the into the process. And certainly the U.S. government, and we just saw this today in our newsletter, really makes the link between debt traps and asset seizures. So that's a point that Professor Brodigan does not make, but I, I appreciate your clarification. Okay, so uh, for asset seizure, let's put it in a more neutral term, uh, debt for equity swap, okay? So I think when a country run into sovereign debt crisis, usually there's uh, three solutions. One is that... Uh, you default and slide into a debt crisis. And what happened after that is um, either there's a suspension, right? Or cancellation of debt, directly right off your debt. Or you go for debt restructuring, which is use, uh, which is the two party, the borrowing party and the creditors sit down and then work out a new agreement of how to pay the debt. And then for debt, for equity swaps, this is really common solution for um, lendings uh, from private creditors in the past. And I see that China is increasingly adopting this model to approach its lending lately. And I wonder, like, would you think that relief or debt cancellation or suspension would be a better option for countries, southern countries, than debt restructuring? I mean, if you look at history, uh, in the 80s, the sovereign debt crisis in Africa and Latin America. So in Latin America at the time, because a lot of the countries that went into sovereign default owned their debt to private creditors. So they opted for debt restructuring, like taking a country like Argentina, for example. At the time, it has to give away its um, state-run airline and submarine and these kind of crazy assets to creditors. And for African countries, they opted for debt relief, takeouts because a lot of the debt was owned by public public creditor. So basically, the, this story is well known. They take out this short-term relief loan from World Bank and IMF and opted for a policy, overall policy restructuring to 
basically adopt the shock therapy to improve their economy to try to pay back the debt in the long run. And the result is that although these two regions and the countries in each regions are very different, but the result is that the Latin American countries recover from the sovereign debt crisis much faster than the African countries. So I'm wondering, I'm asking this question to you, do you think that debt restructuring is not an ideal option if um, these southern states are sliding into debt crisis? I mean, comparing to other options, would you say that if China offers debt cancellation to this country, would it actually require or ask this southern country to further ban, ban its policy or other other aspects to get that debt cancellation? Kobus, let's put that question to you. What do you think? It's, I have to admit at the beginning that it's very difficult for me to answer. It does seem to me that that the Chinese government or Chinese actors as a whole wouldn't necessarily be imposing the same kind of broad range of of, of reforms that the way that the Bretton Woods institutions did during the the, the earlier negotiations. The, the the kind of terrible effects that those had on Africa and, and the kind of as, as Kelly pointed out that it took them much longer to recover from from the crisis than than in Latin America. I think would would mean that African governments would probably also resist it. That's Said, you know, kind of, it's, it's it's difficult for me to to really to really compare the two in, in in sophisticated terms because I simply just don't know enough about it. Um, and also, you know, could I, I think. I think the kind of geopolitical kind of situation is, is sufficiently different that that it would be difficult to kind of apply the one to the other. Uh, what do you think? And the fact that there are so many private creditors also complicates things. But from the dispute and the discussion that we're seeing in Zambia today, and what people like David Malpass at the World Bank have been asking for is for the Chinese to work in concert with other creditors. So, for example, they want the transparency. They want a unified deal across multiple countries. They want to be able to sit down with all the various parties. Now, to be fair, private creditors aren't doing that either. But in terms of whether it's better to restructure the debt, cancel the debt, do a debt for equity swap, all of that can be decided once we see the true extent of, of debt in a place like Zambia. But until we see that, we can't really make an informed decision about it. And I think that's one of the major distinctions between the, the negotiations that happened in the 80s and 90s for previous debt crises and what we see today. Because governments are less transparent, as we're seeing in Angola and Zambia, and the Chinese are not being forthcoming at all about their relationships. And so no one really knows what's what. And that's what makes, I think, that question very difficult to answer. What do you think, Kelly? You're absolutely correct that China is not sort of sitting down and making a unified gesture of how it is how it is going to approach these debt relations. I think part of an important reason of this is because all these project-based debt relation is mediated by major Chinese uh, state-owned enterprise. So corporate are the de facto entity that's handling these debt talks, not the state. So, for instance, in the case of Translaos Railway, it's China Railway Corporation that's handling the financial deals and then pushing for the Lao side, Lao side to sign up for the deal, and blah, blah, blah. So after the Lao side cannot come up with the equity investment, it's also the China Railway Corporation directly in conversation with the Lao state about how to swap the cash equity with land equity. So it's 
you have this many Chinese corporation, each individually handling a debt relation. So it's really hard for the state to come up as a unified entity and tell the world what we're going to do with this debt relation. Um, one of the great aspects of the of your paper is that you draw um, all of the all of the impacts of the debt right through to the worker level, um, and a lot of a lot of the paper focuses on the on the difficulties faced by by Chinese workers in 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 all of this. this you know, kind of problems, um, and and it chimes very interestingly with uh, conversations in Africa, um, where there's a lot of of concern about um, about jobs that um, that could be done by local Africans being given to imported Chinese workers, and the issue of 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 importing Chinese labor to work on big infrastructure projects is a very is a very political one in Africa. So I wonder if you could if you reflect a little bit on the role of the Chinese workers and how things sh- shook out for them you know and in in this process okay so like uh, the myth of chinese workers being exported to work on audit like china finance infrastructure projects is usually linked to uh, two reasonings the first reasoning is that because china gave money for these projects so the uh, ratio of Chinese labor importation is built into the financial contract. That's the first explanation. And the second one is um, because there's no high-skilled labor locally, so you have to import labor into either Southeast Asia or Africa to work on this project. And what I see is that neither these two reasonings are valid to an extent. But in Laos' case, the Chinese labor bought in because they are more accustomed to the kind of uh, labor wage labor regime that you don't get paid monthly. Instead, you get paid perhaps in in a lump sum in six months or a year. Because if you if you have an infrastructure project uh, which have like irregular financial flow, you don't get money from uh, let's say uh, these project companies constantly and like steadily, then as a ground level contractor, a situation you might face is that you wait, you work on the project for a year following the contract. And then by the end of the year, you suddenly get a lump sum of money from above because the financial situation was worked out by at interstate level. Okay. So in this scenario, if you hire local labor, um, then you can promise to pay them by uh, like by months or even by day. You would want Chinese labor that is much more expensive, but they would be agreed to receive a big paycheck at the end of the year. That would give the subcontractors and contractors much more leeway, financial leeways on the project. Man, now that's why people hate working for Chinese companies. I mean, that is just such a garbage way of setting up things. I mean, it just it's infuriating to even hear that. Because it's just, exactly. yeah, it's just terrible. And that's also, that's also the reason why only Chinese enterprise and Chinese labor can work on Chinese projects. An important reason is that they are more vulnerable for this kind of exploitations. I mean, yeah. I mean, but it's just, it, it's absurd that, that these Chinese companies are not adapting to work standards in other countries. And, and that's why, I mean, it just makes no well, sense. They they cannot because they're not getting paid. The Chinese state is forcing the state-owned enterprise to build a railway without money. Well, then they have. That's the problem with their financial model, though. Well, that's the problem with their business model. 
They've got to figure out a different business model then. So then to me, when I hear that, I think that the criticisms against Chinese companies for either importing labor or mistreating African labor or whatever uh, are legitimate. I mean, it seems absolutely legitimate. I mean, it's just, it's just, it, yeah, it's head spinning. A lot of Chinese enterprise are themselves victim of this entire process. So I would not say that their abusive labor practices is legit, but there's a reason that exacerbate these kind of practices. Yeah, well, they shouldn't. They're not ready to go overseas then, and if that's the case, I mean, because yeah, at that point, I mean, exactly. we have labor laws. They they could not do that, and they only do that in countries where they can get away with it. And Kobus, you and I have talked about this for many, many years. They would never pull something like that in Sweden, in the U.S., or in 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 Singapore because the regulatory structures would never allow that. They do that in low governance environments where they can get away with it. So they are capable of absolutely playing by the rules but they choose not to in poor governance countries. But I mean, I, I guess, you know, part of part of why they're doing this work in the global south is also related to the kind of attractiveness of the of the idea of the Belt and Road Initiative as a whole. And that means that these companies, who, whoever is working on an individual Belt and Road related project, ends up being on the hook and under very like like pressure from above, you know, kind of from from the state level to to you know to to play according to the rules that are already set up. Like, am I reading that that correct? Yeah, what I am really trying to show is that Belt and Road Initiative is Chinese state exploiting not only in southern countries but also vulnerable Chinese actors. It's interesting because there's a line in your paper that really jumped out at me. Let me read it to you, and I'd love to get your comment on it. Debt of any kind has a temporal dimension that forms the basis of an unequal power relation between creditor and, and debtor. It is through claims on the debtor's future labor for repayment that the creditor derives its power. And this really goes to the theory of asymmetric power between China and debtor country. And we see this around the world, that at the end of the day, China holds the cards because it's so big and because it's the creditor. Talk to us about the power imbalance that comes and that allows China to get away with these these terrible labor practices, regardless if it's also to Chinese companies or not, but it, these are terrible labor practices and other abuses because of their power advantage. Mm -hmm. So by making these landings and actually following through these landings, China does accumulated creditor powers. But how does the accumulated credit, creditor power, how will that play out in the future? Um, I mean, this for this question, you should not only look at the financial relation, but a lot of times financial this financial power relation is it's intersected with other political, social, and economic concerns. So... I mean, financially, of course, it's a, it's an imbalanced power relation, but there has been, I should say, a lot of cases in this interstate interstatal uh, credit relations where creditor ended up not having that much power over debtor in the end because of other reasons. I mean, people get very excited and furious to think about China's lending and the power that it bestowed to China. But how that power would play out in reality, you have to really look at them, look at each case, case by case. But I guess that comes to the question, Kobus, and I'll put this to both you and Kelly, which is, we, again, geopolitics is the undercurrent of all of this. Because, again, 
for a $14 trillion economy, $120, $130 billion of debt in Africa, a $465 million loan for the Laos Railway, it's insignificant. It's not that much. If they write that off their books, nobody will know. It will not have any meaningful impact. So let's go to the politics of it, Kobus. And this is the key question that Kelly's been bringing up, which is there are political considerations. I would suggest that those political considerations relate to 4THKXJS, Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, the party, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and the South China Sea. If a debtor country violates one of those red lines, as has been the case in Australia today, um, the Chinese will, will, will exercise the power and their asymmetrical weight in the relationship. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one doesn't become, uh, you know, a $14 trillion economy by writing off you know, billion dollar loans, you know, it's um, the, uh, you know, there, there is, there is clearly, a, you know, a, a power involved in the very issue of getting the money back. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I think, I think it, it, it just builds, it builds a, a form of, of kind of long-term relationship and a form of long-term leverage, um, which, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that any particular country will be pushed into any particular position, but that it just kind of creates this kind of security, you know, kind of that, that China has something to fall back on. But you're avoiding the word that uh, Robert O'Brien, who is the U.S. National Security Advisor, he kept saying this week uh, on Friday, he did a, an event with the Atlantic Council, and the word that he kept bringing up was dependence. Is this the dependence that Robert O'Brien is talking about, that countries who, are, who borrow too much from China become dependent on China because of the debts? You know, there I, I kind of want to stay away from that word, actually not, not you know, be, be, because it... it in academic circle, you, you know, kind of it, it, it hooks too much to a, to a much longer kind of like theoretical tradition of dependency theory, um, you know, and, and you know, I'd have to kind of think a lot more about like how, how the two kind of come together. I, I, for, for me, uh, leverage makes sense, you know, kind of as, as a word because, because you know, in, in a lot of cases, these are, uh, you know, it's, it's it's not like the the country. It's not like you know, kind of Francophone African colonies were depend dependent on France, for example, in you know, kind of in in earlier decades, for for kind of supplying a whole bunch of public goods, you know, right across the 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 society. Um, in you know, I think in the current case, these are frequently very big, very kind of uh, you know, flagship, but but single projects, um, which then creates forms of of leverage. Um, you you know that that might push a country to to support China on on a political issue in in a multilateral institution, for example. Kelly, like, how how do you think about about the use of that word dependence, um, and and how do you kind of break it down? Well, I'm an economic geographer, so for me, like these kind of lending practices undoubtedly uh, deepen the financial dependencies between creditor and debtor country. For me, that was not a questionable part. I am concerned about how this kind of dependency will be utilized by, let's say, Chinese state. How it is going to leverage that in different circumstances. So I definitely agree with Eric that in situation, if these borrowing states uh, cross the red line of Chinese states, like issues on Tibet and Xinjiang and Hong Kong, that would be um, China could be potentially using these debt relation in a more aggressive way. But aside from that, I think people need to pay attention to um, how this dependency in the long term sort of give China a kind of leverage and edge 
over a lot of、uh, negotiations in the economic and political realm. Like how it is using this kind of creditor power is really an important question to look for. Well, I guess that is the big question that we're all waiting to figure out. We don't know how that is going to play out. But when you look at your research in Laos, what do you think is the big takeaway that somebody sitting in Africa should follow on about China's relationship with Laos in terms of the infrastructure projects, the labor, the debt? What are some of the lessons that can be applied from Laos to elsewhere in the BRI and also in Africa? Well, I feel like、uh, people need to open up the black box of sovereign debt, not just take it as a number or a deal that's sealed at a particular moment, but actually look at whether the promised、uh, financial service or practices was conducted, and that would actually determine the current situation of a debt relation. So, I mean, there are a lot of opaqueness about Chinese. Lending practices. I think an important reason of that is all these、um, debt relations, when set up, are probably not carefully thought after. So once it was actually implemented, a lot of change already happened. So you can't, let's say,、uh, talk about Laos sovereign debt by taking a, like 2015 railway deal into account. You have to look at. How much restructuring has already been made, and then access the implication. The article is, or the paper is, sovereign debt in the making, financial entanglements, and labor politics along the Belt and Road in Laos. It's a fascinating article. Unfortunately, most of you will not be able to read it because it's one of these annoying academic articles that's behind a very expensive paywall. It's in the article Economic Geography. But for those of you who do have access. To these academic libraries, I highly recommend that you take a look at it. There are some fascinating insights that Kelly comes up with from the experience in Laos, and also some of the broader concepts about the debtor-creditor relationship that we discussed. Again, this is a very complex issue, as Kelly has pointed out. Kelly Wanjing Chen is a research assistant professor in the Division of Social Sciences at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to break all this down and explain it to us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Kobus, let's zero in on what I think is the core issue here: is the opacity. And it was absolutely fascinating how Kelly kind of talked about how the the lack of transparency is used as a shield in some ways to be able to improve what are otherwise mediocre deals without scrutiny. Now, again, I think part of it is intentional, and part of it is just the way the Chinese do things. They're not accustomed to doing things according to World Bank, IMF standards, or USAID standards. They're doing things their way, but their way, I think, is running into a very serious problem, and we're seeing that play out right now in Zambia. And also, these deals, like they are in, in Laos, are going to create huge problems for the Chinese, as we talked about in terms of the labor. But also, at some point, people are just going to be fed up. And I don't know what that means. I don't know how it plays out. I'm discounting the American criticism because it's so poorly informed, and it's to me, it's largely irrelevant. Nobody pays attention to the American debt trap narratives and what they say. The bigger issue, actually, is from the the, the debtors themselves. And at some point, these are political movements are going to start mobilizing against them, as we're seeing in the Ghanaian elections, as we saw in Botswana, in Malawi, where the Chinese become political issues domestically, and in part, it's because of this perception or reality of collusion among the governing elites between from China and the the, the, the debtor country. But that opacity she talked about was absolutely fascinating. 
I guess, you know, one could think about this, you know, on a slightly wider scale as as really the first moment of crisis where a whole lot of of the f- the first phase of China's position, like, you know, expansion into the world is coming into question. Um, you know, and, and I agree with you that that this could this could generate a lot of kind of political heat for China, particularly, I think, in places like Africa, because unlike Laos, obviously, Africa is far away from China, you know, so, so it doesn't have that it doesn't have that kind of fine-grained kind of neighbor relationship that that, that some countries in Southeast Asia has with, with China. Um, you know, it's it's easy for for politicians to kind of to jump on on China in a place like Africa because it, it doesn't have you know kind of fall out in other in other complicated ways like it might have in you know in a place like Laos. Um, so I, I guess you know if if one takes you know the, the if one thinks about this kind of cliche of China of you know kind of of crossing the river while the stones that they're essentially working out how to do things while they're already doing them. I wonder then if if we're going to look back in the future at the COVID nineteen crisis as this moment where they had to kind of reevaluate how they've been doing so far. You know whether this is going to force them to change their lending practices in some kind of way because they're running into so many kind of so many def- possible defaults and then with them so many na- kind of political problems in the process. Well, it seems like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, in the sense that they're working with G20 countries on the debt service suspension initiative, but they're not working in concert with other G20 countries. So they're participating in a parallel track, and they think that's doing a lot. It's big progress for them. They never worked on a G20 multilateral debt deal like this, but the fact that they're not communicating with other G20 partners is creating some problems here. It's interesting because as we explore what they're doing in other parts of the world, there are clearly parallels to what's going on in Africa. So her emphasis, repeated emphasis on geopolitical considerations, I think gives weight to some of the critics' concerns about what China's trying to do. Again, it's hard to identify what exactly those geopolitical considerations are because they vary depending on the country and they're highly ambiguous, and maybe they're not precise. And this is where I think some of the African critiques fall short, whereas some of the African critiques are they're coming in to seize an asset or seize a mine. I don't think that's it. I think they're playing a bigger picture game here in terms of it's their core strategic interests around what we called 4THKXJ. It's also getting more influence in the international system, at the United Nations, at the World Bank and whatnot. So I don't think it's as precise as what the critics say, but at the same time, it's definitely a play for influence. And they're going to use that leverage ongoing. And that's why I think they'll never, ever, ever write off or cancel the debt. So any African appeal... To, for debt cancellation from the Chinese is dead on arrival. But at the end of the day, one has to consider the fact that uh, geopolitics is definitely a part of this equation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as as you as you point out, the from the Chinese side, the the participation in the G20s um, debt service suspension in, initiative is a big step. You know, kind of this is that is the first you know kind of an early moment where where they actually had to like reach and like deal with it and and work with these partners in a way that they were that they're not accustomed to. I think what this also reveals is. Is, is some of the kind of geopolitical problems that that is kind of bedeviling everyone at the moment, and not not just in this particular issue, in in the sense that there there 
their core partners in the G20 are also Paris Club members. Um, and, you know, so, so there they, they, they're, facing, they're facing some of the, the kind of geopolitical tensions that's, that's involved in China's relationship with, with Europe and with the United States, particularly across a whole br broad range of issues. But it also reveals the weakness of the G20 itself, because the thing is, the G20 is not only rich countries. The G20 includes large economies from the global south. So Brazil is a G20 member, Mexico is a G20 member, South Africa is. But you can see how those voices are silent in the, in the G20 in any kind of way that we can see from the outside anyway. You know, kind of we're not seeing the fact that there are prominent global south countries are, are members of the G20 doesn't seem to be pushing the G20 into any kind of helpful position on, on debt relief beyond the DSSI. You know, so you get the feeling that within the, D, within the G20, even if they're talking about the G20, what you're actually really talking about is a few rich northern countries and their relationship with China and how that plays out in the larger, you know, kind of larger context of the G20 and then in the larger context of the world. Um, you know, and, and, and that I think just, again, you know, COVID reveals everything at the same time. And one of the things it's revealing at the moment, I think, is the weakness of the G20 as any kind of like space to, 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 to solve any problems in, problems of this scale anyway. It's interesting you say that because uh, the Nikkei Asian Review, a Japanese publication, in their coverage of last week's World Bank IMF uh, meetings and also the G20 meeting as well on debt relief, uh, quoted an IMF official saying, and this is a quote, this G20 meeting was a complete failure. And, and so, again, it's very easy to pick on the Chinese for what their, their part and their role in the current debt crisis. And again, it's like you know, hitting a pinata with your eyes open. But the G20 also bears a lot of responsibility. For those of you who are not familiar with the deal that was struck, they did an extension of the DSSI for six months. And that's about as bare bones and minimalist and mailing it in as you can get. That comes nowhere near close to what African stakeholders have been asking for in terms of liquidity relief, in terms of what uh, Vera Songwe at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa is talking about, you know, bundling up this new, all of the debt into this new financial instrument. We're talking about, you know, meaningful debt relief and restructuring. They didn't do any of that. And I think they deserve as much criticism for that as what we've been directing towards the Chinese for their opacity. So there is a lot of blame to go around here. But it was, to me, it was a, you know, for lack of a better word, a completely half-ass effort on the part of the G20 last week. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it reveals also as how little political the world there is to do anything, you know, kind of to, to, to kind of to, to pull together in any particular direction, not only on, on African debt, and then specifically how little how little political will there is in the global north to deal with African debt at all. Um, you know, so so that it's, again, it's, it's very revealing, you know, it's, it's kind of dismayingly revealing of where we are. To be fair, it's not just Africa that the DSSI is dealing with. So this is also about South America, South Asia, and other parts of the global south. Uh, so lots of contentious issues out there. This is a very, very complicated issue. We try and break these things down every single day in our email newsletter. And we talk about debt. We talk about debt restructuring. We talk about opacity. So if this is an interest, a topic that you're interested in, we would love for you to join our growing community of readers. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. It's just $3 for three months to try it out. If you like it, it's only $15 a month after that or $7 a month if you are a student or a teacher. Uh, but again, we would love to have you join our community of readers. And also, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Kobus and I. You can reach me at Eric. E-R-I-C at ChinaAfricaProject.com, or you can find Cobus at C-O-B-U-S at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We love hearing from 
our listeners and our readers and getting into some great discussions with you about some of these very contentious, complicated, yet fascinating issues in the China-Africa relationship as it's something that's changing very, very quickly right now. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another program. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>